From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. As always, we're honored that you're joining us. And keep in mind, if you don't gain some new knowledge during this hour, we have a 200% money-back guarantee. Yes, we'll refund double what you paid to listen. Now, admittedly, I'm very confident I won't have to pay out any refunds at the end of this show, even though we won't have enough time to cover all the questions I have for our guest in my notes. Knowing that in advance, though, I will propose a solution to that dilemma at the end of the show. Now, regardless of where you are in the world, whether you're listening to the live show or listening to the archive, I'm confident you'll be glad you joined us. And whether you're new to investing or have decades of experience, you should get a pad and pen or electronic device wherever you take notes. If you're driving, hopefully you carry recorder as I do, but don't try to write while you're driving. You can always re-listen from the archive. Now, our topic today is Invest with the Fed. And the Fed, of course, is the common abbreviation for the U.S. Federal Reserve. If you listen to any financial news this past week, there was a lot of chatter, I'll call it chatter, about the word patient. The talking heads weren't referring to the all-important virtue of patience, nor were they talking about the uh, medical doctor's list of uh, people in the waiting room. They were talking about what the Fed was going to do with the word patient. And, by the way, on the word of patience, let me digress and share a great definition of patience from one of the audio books that Dale Carnegie puts out. I was reading it recently. Patience is the ability to wait without experiencing anger, anxiety, or frustration. Now, I know that sounds easier than it is for most of us humans, but... But, by the way, that book does propose a number of strategies to help us become more patient if only those talking heads would learn. But that digression has nothing to do with the Fed, so let's get back to them. You see, if hours of airtime and countless columns of newspapers, magazines, and emails are focusing on a single word in their policy statement, then the Fed policy must have a lot of impact on the financial markets. The problem is that it truly has a powerful impact, but instead we hear lots of conversation and debate from people who really don't understand the ramifications of Fed policy. Well, that's our ambitious mission for today, for you and me to better understand what the effects are of Fed policy on our portfolio. So after this show, we'll have some rational reasons as to when and why we should back up to the truck to invest more or sell our investments from the back of our truck and haul our cash to safety. Yes, I'm being overly dramatic, but think about all the hysteria the talking heads are trying to create so Maybe you'll subscribe to their insider newsletter as if they had all the answers and knew when various financial markets would change direction. Our guest today, on the other hand, will help us understand Fed policy and understand the ramifications of that policy. Now, you may be wondering how I can be so sure since the show is live, it's not pre-recorded, so I don't know exactly what we'll cover. Well, I was privileged to get an early copy of his new book on this very topic. Now, we have a tradition of using a quote to set the stage for this topic, and I'd like to share the first that came to mind. It's one of two I heard regularly from Dr. Martin Zweig, a true investing genius who passed away just two years ago. Don't fight the Fed. Yes, very simply, don't fight the Fed. It's often referred to as Marty Zweig's mantra, although this may have been used earlier, that's the person I and probably most people associate with this quote. And the second phrase he used often, don't fight the tape. I should explain for our younger listeners, the tape refers to the ticker tape that was used to transmit real-time stock quotes long before many of us were born. Incidentally, Marty Zweig was uh, uh, mentioned in our show in The First Commandment of Investing, is quoted in the book we'll be discussing today, and I've owned the Zweig Fund for decades and still do, even though others now manage it using his philosophy. Today is Monday, March 23rd, 2015. It's 9.04 here in Arizona, 12.04 p.m. I almost said a.m. there, but we're talking obviously in the the, uh, noon time. 
in the uh, East Coast, or on the East Coast, where our guest is, and 1704 in, well, I just changed over to 1705 in continental Europe, who haven't changed your clocks yet over there. It's the only dare ever like it, and we'll do everything possible to make it a great one. You're listening to the Wealthina Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. The show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona, where we don't change our clocks. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss some shows or you want to re-listen, you can find them on the archive. Just go to wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. If you go there now, you may get a warning. I haven't checked it this morning. The provider who helped us set up that site and connect it to Facebook hasn't renewed their security certificate, so you get this big warning, and it's kind of tough to get into the site. So in the meantime, feel free to contact me, Ron, at WealthDNA.us if you need to get links to shows. Our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix, Scottsdale area. Now, the U.S. equity markets, which rose last week after most recent Fed speak on the word patient, are off to a positive start again. Asia was up overnight. Europe, which is soon closing, is mostly down, and Brazil is down. They're having a bad year. The advantage of joining us for the live show is you get to ask questions, make comments, either using the chat window below the radio player, and I encourage you to do that given the number of questions we have for our guest. And, of course, you can call in. But if you're listening to the show from the archive, neither of those options will work. I've tried them. Trust me on that. If you listen to the archive of the show, especially 10 or 20 years in the future, you'll have some history to see how the information and tips you hear today on this show would have impacted your wealth accumulation had you joined us live. Now, our special guest to discuss Invest with the Fed is Dr. Robert Johnson, who, in addition to his Ph.D., has the CFA and CAIA certifications. Now, in his new role as president and CEO of the American College of Financial Services, he'll probably be signing the certifications for thousands of financial professionals in the future. Dr. Johnson is also the author of a number of books on my ever-growing reading list, including Investment Banking for Dummies, Strategic Value Investing, and most importantly, Invest with the Fed, which I'm most of the way through, which, of course, we'll be talking about today. Let's give a warm radio welcome to Dr. Robert Johnson. Welcome, Bob. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, first, I'd like to congratulate you on your recent appointment as president and CEO of the American College of Financial Services. For anyone in the world of investing, finance, uh, insurance, it'd be a real honor to head one of the top institutions in those fields. It it certainly is, Ron. It uh, is an honor and a privilege. We're located in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, and we have as our mission to raise the level of professionalism in financial services by promoting ongoing education, ethical practices, and the pursuit of new knowledge for the benefit of society. Now, you mentioned that we probably have certified a lot of folks out there. Mm -hmm. There are currently 140,000 individuals with at least one active degree or designation from the college, and we currently have 24,000 students enrolled in one of our various programs. In fact, I think the most interesting stat about our college is that we have provided professional education to more than 20% of the personal financial advisors, planners, insurance agents, and wealth managers in the U.S. today. So if somebody hasn't uh, asked their financial advisor where they got their certification, it might be worth asking a question the next time they see them. Yeah. And it would be uh, incumbent upon them to, to to ask if they had certain credentials. We're most well-known for the Chartered Life Underwriter, the CLU, and the Chartered Financial Consultant, that is the CHFC programs. But interestingly enough, our fastest-growing program is the RICP program, that is the Retirement Income Certified Professional and you know, Ron, with roughly twenty or ten thousand baby boomers retiring every day, um, <laughs> retirement income advice is sorely needed. Um, and I think that uh, the the thing that I'm most proud of about the college is we started the first PhD program in retirement income planning two years ago. Hmm. 
Wow, yeah, and I wasn't uh, aware of that until I guess we did have some guests from the American uh, College, and uh, they did mention that, but that really is a, a, new, or a new designation in the, in the realm of things, uh, and, and definitely sorely need it. And by the way, I'll encourage as many of those retirees to uh, move out to, to Phoenix as, as possible. We have some uh, great places to live out here for, uh, for retirees and, and, and some good financial advisors as well. Some, of course, certified by the American College. Oh, by the way, Bob, today, you know, we, we've had a number of, uh, I'd say, well over 100 prominent guests, uh, wealthy individuals, including some professors from the American College. Today, we move up a notch. You're the first time we had a president of a college or university as our guest, so uh, I really feel honored for having you on, on board today. Well, I'm honored to be the first. <laughs> I gave a, a brief overview of your background. How do you introduce yourself when you go to a cocktail party? I say that I'm a pracademic, <laughs> and what I mean Ooh, by that like is that. I'm part practitioner and part academic. Um, I uh, had a money management company about 25 years ago, so uh, I practiced. Um, I studied investment theory, but uh, you know I'm more interested, Ron, in how we can apply that investment theory to practice. So I've always chosen research projects that practitioners would be interested in, that clients of practitioners would be interested in. And I've researched Fed policy and capital market returns literally for the past quarter century. Yeah, on that note, uh, you've had a pretty busy schedule as well. You're uh, not only joining us on the Wealth DNA Radio Show today, but your book was officially launched last week, a week ahead of schedule, correct? It it was. The, the book's been available in the Kindle version for about a month, and we've gotten a lot of really positive reviews uh, on Amazon.com. And McGraw-Hill has even indicated that the early sales numbers are quite positive. But as you indicated, the uh, hardbound version has been available for about a week. Mm -hmm. And I will remind our listeners, it is a hardbound version, and this is a book that goes uh, after reading it, uh, looking through it, you're going to want it as part of your reference library. Uh, there's a lot of good facts. We'll touch on just a few of them today, but there's a lot of good information in there that uh, you'll be using for years ahead because you can't remember all of the details uh, at all. But uh, tell us a little bit about your two co-authors. They're not at the American College. They're scattered around the U.S., correct? That is correct. I, I'm really fortunate to have two wonderful and very talented co-authors. You know, Ron, I played tennis in college, and uh, success in doubles was directly tied to the quality of the partner you were paired with. I couldn't have better partners than Jerry Jensen and Luis Garcia Fiehu. Um Gary's a full professor of finance at Northern mm -hmm. Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, and he's got an academic resume that is the envy of most academics. Uh, Jerry was a classmate of mine, interestingly enough, in oh, the really? Ph.D. program at the University of Nebraska in the mid-'80s. Um, Luis is a professor of finance at Florida Atlantic uh, University, and he's really – Luis is a whiz with the data. Um, Luis and I actually worked together at CFA Institute for several years. Um, he is a prolific author of financial journal articles and, uh, like Jerry, just a terrific guy. So writing a book isn't just what you know, it's who you know as well, is what you're, uh, what you're telling us. Absolutely so, and it's an opportunity to keep uh, friends close together. Uh, as you said, you started the research a long time ago, but you also obviously had to start working on the book before you joined the American College. You were located back in the uh, Midwest at that time, so a little bit closer to uh, uh, Professor Jensen. But um, again, you had to work around the country on this stuff. Yeah, I was actually teaching at uh, the Hyder College of Business at Creighton University um, mm -hmm. and had the idea for the book when I was there. And at that time, enlisted to help with Jerry and Luis. And, um, uh, and while during the time we were writing the book, um, accepted the, the job at the American College. Hmm. Okay. And before we dig into some of the specifics about the book and this topic, would you share with our listeners how they'd learn more about you, about the American College, and about this new book? What are some of the good websites they can go to to, to, to learn that? Sure, thanks, Ron. The uh, website for the American College is just www.theamericancollege.edu. Um, we are an educational institution, so it is a .edu. For the book, I'd simply go to Amazon.com and search for Invest with the Fed. And if somebody would like to get a hold of me directly, uh, feel free to email me at bob.johnson 
at theamericancollege.edu. Yeah, you're one of the few college presidents who uh, is uh, fairly informal on that. You don't use the Dr. Robert and the Professor Robert and all of those kinds of designations. So uh, refreshing. No, I have a rule of thumb around the American College. Anybody that calls me Dr. Johnson has to put a quarter in a quarter jar. Okay. Well, it might be uh, time. They they say there's no inflation. Maybe it's time to raise that uh, if it if becomes a major violation. Maybe good good fundraising for for some extra events around the place. Now you've been working on the research book, as you said, uh, research for this book uh, for about 25 years. How did you get started on that research, and why did you choose the Fed and the market returns as as your topic? Well, I was a young college professor at Creighton University in the late 1980s and was, as I said earlier, focused on issues that practitioners were interested in. And as I indicated, I also had a small money management firm and was convinced that Fed policy had a major influence on market returns. So like most college professors, I... uh, put a uh, top student, um, the fellow's name was Brad Kuchera, on a project to write a paper on Fed policy and market returns, that is research what, uh, what researchers had said about that. Brad summarized what others uh, had uh, researched, and I thought there was a great deal of potential to extend this line of research. Now, I'd have to add, by the way, Brad went on to a terrific career and is a very successful uh, investment advisor in his own right. Hmm. Okay, so you gave him a good start, I guess. Uh, Let's let's start with some of the key fundamentals. You classify Fed monetary policy into three types of periods. What are those three types? Expansive, indeterminate, and restrictive periods. Um, and okay, we define ex- that. So expansive is the first, okay? Indeterminate. Okay. And then and restrictive, re- okay. Right. Expansive periods are associated with falling interest rates. So when interest rates are falling, we say that's an expansive period. Indeterminate periods are characterized by interest rates that have no discernible direction. That is, rates that are bouncing around are different rates that are uh, moving in conflict with each other. And restrictive periods are periods of rising interest rates. Now, Ron, there's a very key point here very early on in this, and that is that our research has indicated that it isn't so much the level of interest rates that influences market returns as it is the direction of interest rate movements. So whether interest rates are rising or falling, and not whether they are high or low relative to the past. Hmm. Okay, very, very important point. Now, just from the name and and from what you explained on the expansive, um, I would think that most uh, listeners will assume that we've been in an expansive period for the last few years. Are they correct? Yeah, one would certainly think so, but what we say by our research and by our characterization of Mm -hmm. Fed monetary policy is that actually right now we're currently in an indeterminate monetary policy period. Wow. Okay, so then that obviously leads us to the the important question. What determines that classification of these Fed monetary policy periods? Well – what motivated what motivates us is we want research that is very simple for people to follow. Mm-hmm. I think too too much of the academic research that I read is um, very complex and it's very difficult for the average investor. So we wanted a classification scheme that was simple. Um, We didn't want it to be determined by some complex model involving the confluence of several variables. So what Mm -hmm. we do is we look at two interest rates. We look at the Federal Reserve discount rate and the Fed funds rate. And what we say is that when both of these rates are trending down, we characterize the period as expansive. When both are trending up, we characterize the period as restrictive. And when they are moving in opposite directions, the period is indeterminate. And what we mean by trending is we mean the last change. So if the last change Mm -hmm. in the discount rate and the Fed funds rate were both down, that period would be expansive. 
Okay, and what's interesting, as soon as you say that, and hopefully most people, most listeners will, will pick up on this, is very seldom do we hear about, when we hear about the Fed is dropping interest rates, decreasing, looking at, they don't even mention which rate they're talking about. There is both a discount rate and a Fed rate, and we of course want to talk more about the details of that, but let me take this as an opportunity to remind um, our listeners you're tuned to the Wealthinia Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp., a real estate fund in the Phoenix Scottsdale area. Now, if you missed some of the prior shows or if you want to re-listen to them, we maintain an archive of shows on wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an e- email reminder of the shows or if you have trouble accessing our site in the next few days, because we have had some technical problems since uh, I think they drank too much on uh, St. Patrick's Day, send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us, and we'll keep you posted about future shows and events. And a reminder, during the show, we welcome you to ask questions or make comments. Uh, We do have a chat window below the radio player, although, uh, Pete, I don't know if you're seeing that. At least mine mine is not popping up correctly. I'm not seeing the... uh, the, the chat window. It is saying there is one, but it's not coming up yet. So maybe, I don't know if it's a problem at my end or at the, at the uh, studio. So if you could check that, uh, Pete would really help. Um, you can also call in 917-388-4162, which is also shown at the top of our internet screen. Now, our topic today is invest with the Fed. Our Special guest is Dr. Robert Johnson, President and CEO of the American College, and he wrote the book about today's topic, Invest with the Fed. Okay, Bob, let's go back to these two rates. Let's make sure our listeners get these fundamentals right. Could you define both the discount rate and the Fed funds rate? Sure. The Fed Federal Reserve discount rate is actually set by the Fed and is the rate the Fed charges on banks on loans to banks. Um, now, the Fed doesn't change the discount rate very often, and it is interpreted as a measure of long-term interest rate policy. Uh, for instance, the last change in the Fed discount rate was way back in 2010. Now, the federal funds rate is the rate on loans that banks extend to one another. The Fed does not set the Fed's funds rate as it's a market-determined rate, mm-hmm. although the Fed does set a target Fed funds rate. So, again, the Fed funds rate is determined in the market, a market-determined rate, but the Fed has a target rate for the Fed funds rate. And that target currently is between 0 and 0.25%. And this target rate, Ron, is what the financial press tends to focus on. Now, our research doesn't utilize the target rate but actually utilizes the actual Fed funds rate determined in the market. We believe the actual Fed funds rate is a good measure of the short-term interest rate policy of the Fed because the Fed will every once in a while give the markets a head fake. That is, um, in in, uh, basketball terms, and we're in March Madness now, Mm -hmm. that is the Fed may have a, a policy of tightening rates in the long run but it may loosen rates in the very short run and be more conciliatory in the very short run. So we look at what actually is determined in the market, that is the Fed funds rate and not the Fed funds target rate. rate. But the curious thing is each of these rates is very close to zero. The the actual discount rate, again, is 0.75%. And the average Fed funds rate for February, and it's important to note that we utilize the last, the average Fed funds rate for the last month. So we look at what the average Fed funds rate was in February, and it was 0.11%. But again, mm-hmm. I don't want the, I don't want your listeners to focus too much on, on the, the level. level of the rates, but actually on the direction of the rates. So, you know, summarizing, since the last change in the discount rate was an increase, and that was in 2010, and the last change in the Fed funds rate was a decrease, that is, it decreased from January to February, we'd characterize the current period as an indeterminate Fed monetary policy period. 
There's a trivia question. People can start asking their uh, friends and family, and nobody will have the right answer unless they've read your book, I have a feeling. Now, what's the percentage of time the Fed pursues one of these three policies? So if you, you've done, obviously, a research over, over a number of years, uh, you know, what percentage of the time has it been expansive versus uh, restrictive and indeterminate? Well, we look at the period from 1966 through 2013 because, again, this research was completed before the last year end, so we couldn't have included 2014. But over that 48-year time period – and by the way, that time period was chosen because of data limitations. We could only get data starting in 1966. Over that 48-year time period, there were 576 months um, – and monetary conditions, interestingly enough, Ron, were expansive, restrictive, or indeterminate about one-third of the time. Hmm. And to give you the specific numbers, 172 months were expansive, mm-hmm. 209 months were indeterminate, and the remaining 195 months were restrictive. And from a researcher's standpoint, that data is wonderful data because it makes comparisons nice because the sample sizes are relatively the same size. Hmm. In other words, yeah, no, in other words, so. returns, you know, in, in any of our conclusions wouldn't be driven by small sample sizes. Correct. Correct. Exactly. And I was, as a matter of fact, uh, that may be one of the things I'll ask you a little bit about later on, but it does sound like you have quite a bit. As, as I looked back at other research done, and some of it's mentioned, of course, in your in your, uh, in the, or your appendix there uh, of the book, uh, very often they went back like 25 years. So, And I was going to ask that question, but you, you answered it very, very well, which is just availability of data. So it's not that the Fed was started in 1966. It's just that the, the data was much less available because of computerization, I'm assuming. It, that's true. And also, Ron, one of the things was the Fed as really didn't become a force in the markets until uh, the 50s and early 60s. Um, Fed policy didn't change a great deal in the, uh, in the 20s and 30s, so you, you wouldn't be able to draw many conclusions. Um, the, the, you know, the Fed became much more active in the late 50s, early 60s. Hmm. I'm taking a lot of notes here. Now, as, as, as uh, you know, we look at those periods. You talked about the number of months, but I assume they're not like each time the uh, Fed Open Market Committee meets or they have an announcement. Those those change between expansive and then back to restrictive and then back to indeterminate. I assume these are multiple year periods. So from the last time, as you said, in, in 2010, so it's going to be a four year period that we've been uh, defining as in, indeterminate. So these are these are longer periods, not like they change every few days. Actually, the characterization of monetary period can and does change between meetings of the Federal Open Market Committee. Once again, the Fed funds rate is a market-driven rate that is influenced by the Fed, but it changes directions outside of periods that the Fed Open Market Committee meets. But one thing about our research is that we're looking at monthly periods, so the the, the shortest a period can be in our research is an entire month. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That's helpful. And why is it then we hear all of this fuss among the talking heads each time they meet and issue a statement? Is, is it because of the effect then on the um, uh, the lending between banks and that uh, funds rate uh, does does vary based on the chatter? Well, I, what I think it is is that market participants are looking to the Fed for signals of the future direction of interest rates. I think that most people, most investors realize that um, lower interest rates tend to be better for the markets than higher interest rates. Um, But this fixation, I think, um, is is, is well overblown. And one of the things that I would like to to impart to your listeners is Mm – that if you are trading, if people are trading based on um, short-term changes in Fed policy, I would believe that those people are engaging more in speculation than investing. And I really want to encourage folks to be investors and to position their portfolios um, in the best manner that they can for uh, the longer term and not the short term. And I think that too often people are focused on 
short-term changes in the market based on changes in Fed policy. And, uh, you know, I think that's a very dangerous uh, speculative route to go down. Well, it gives them a lot to talk about on 24-hour financial um, news uh, type programs, the CNBCs and other other places they got plenty to talk about uh, day and night, I guess, by uh, by <laughs> focusing on the, you know, the last statement, the word patient and whatever else. But uh, I, that's, uh, well, well said. We should be investors. We shouldn't be speculators. Now, let's talk about some of the key findings in respect to the financial markets. And let's start with the expansionary period. As you said, logically, this would be a period where stocks do better. Is, is that what you're finding? What is what did the data show? Now, obviously, I have some of that in front of me here, but our, our listeners do not. Tell us kind of a general picture of uh, what it does for various financial markets, especially stocks and bonds. Yeah, the stock market does quite well in expansive periods. If you take the S&P 500 as your proxy for the stock market, mm-hmm. the S&P 500 earned uh, an annualized return of 15.2% during periods in which monetary policy was expansive. Now, if you go to a different index, small stocks did even better. If you take the smallest quintile, that is the the, the smallest 20% of stocks that were traded in the U.S., based on market capitalization, of right. course, um, that the, the smallest quintile of stocks returned 28.4% during expansive periods. So it's almost double what the large stock index did. And this is dramatically higher than the average return over all periods. The average return over all periods was about 10.6%. Hmm. Okay, so that is that is uh, very dramatic, especially as you said on the small stocks, which which uh, tend to be, uh, and I guess it makes sense. They also tend to be high beta, uh, which would imply that they are going to move more than the market uh, when the market's moving. So uh, let's then talk about the flip side first. Let's talk about our next, which is the restrictive period. Uh, you know, is that the period that all of a sudden we find on average stocks are down 10%? Is it that dramatic? Uh, tell us a little bit about restrictive periods. It's not that it's not that dramatic, Ron, in terms of stocks being down. But the stocks don't perform very well during restrictive periods. And again, the S and P 500, the average mm-hmm. annual return over that time period was 5.9 percent during restrictive periods. So 15.2 percent during expansive mm-hmm. periods, 5.9 during restrictive periods. Again, there's a 9.3 percent difference. Um, during uh, expansive to restrictive periods. And what this should tell us is that history indicates that investors should expect lower returns during restrictive monetary periods. So, you know, when when you just look at those numbers, um, perhaps all of the focus on Fed actions really is warranted. Perhaps the talking Fed mm-hmm. heads are right that uh, that uh, all the interest on the Fed uh, is uh, is something that uh, that is warranted. Although an average of 5.9% uh, would still be uh, uh, would do fine for most investors, uh, especially in retirement, where you know we always tend to use that guideline of 4% of, of your assets you could be withdrawing over time. But uh, so 5.9 is not bad. So it's not like we're talking about all of a sudden as soon as the the policy becomes restrictive that uh, your portfolio is going to drop in half, which is kind of the implication we hear from some of those guys. And I think there's 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 real wisdom in what you just said, Ron, is that I think people are too quick to want to make wholesale changes in their portfolios. Mm-hmm. And one of the points that I emphasize um, in, in talking to folks is that what when using the implications of this book to guide your portfolio decisions, it, it's more tilting your portfolio instead of wholesale changes. Okay. Now, I know you don't have all these numbers off the top of your head, but if we looked at some of the smallest stocks where we talked about them doing extremely well in those expansive periods, how would those real small stocks do in the restrictive period? Would they be below that 5.9 or still kind of on par with that? If I remember right from the from the numbers in the book, they were right at about the same. Um, there in, there wasn't a small stock uh, penalty during mm-hmm. uh, restrictive periods, but there was no small stock premium. The, and I think that's the curious thing is you always hear this small stock right. effect. It's largely concentrated. In fact, it's wholly concentrated in expansive monetary policy periods. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I did read through some of the statistics, and that was one that fascinated me, although I don't remember the details on that one either. I, I think you're absolutely right that it was very, very similar. Now, let's talk about this indeterminate period. Um, you know, how do, how do stocks perform during those periods? And, and like you said, we've, we've actually been in one, uh, you know, compared to those uh, expansive and restrictive. Well, again, over that 48-year time period, um, the stock market performance was middling during indeterminate monetary conditions. The S&P returned 11.1% during indeterminate periods, and that is squarely between right. the 15.2 and the 5.9, um, and amazingly so. One of the things is that you, that we had to, when we were first doing this research we really had to check the numbers because it was it, they were just too good to be true and too consistent mm-hmm. to be true now i would say ron and and one point to make to your listeners is that um, this isn't the holy grail of investing. There is no holy grail of investing. Uh, in other words, these are average returns during periods. There are some expansive periods where the market does poorly, and there are some restrictive periods where the market does very well. But if you're in it for the long haul, which I hope most of your listeners are, mm-hmm. um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the returns are pretty consistent across the different time periods. Okay, well, you touched on uh, an aspect that I wanted to ask about anyway. How about risk volatility uh, during these different monetary uh, policy environments? Is it more likely to have the huge decreases during those uh, restrictive periods and, uh, you know, higher higher standard deviations on those? And, you know, wh- how does the data look when it comes to, to risk and volatility? You know, it's a great question, and I really love, by the way, talking to to listeners who understand more about uh, finance, and that you don't have to explain uh, all of the uh, all, all the different uh, characterizations, such as standard deviation and volatility. But we all know that investment theories predicated on the notions that higher returns are achieved by accepting higher risk, and as you said, risk is generally measured by volatility or returns. Mm-hmm. So you would expect that we'd see higher re- since we see higher returns during expansive conditions that that would be accompanied by higher volatility. Mm-hmm. What we find though is that volatility during expansive, restrictive or indeterminate conditions is about the same. Wow. So there really aren't volatility differences. So the differences in the returns aren't explained by different risk levels. Um and I think that's a really a key finding um, is that risk is pretty uh, risk as measured by volatility is pretty consistent across all three uh, monetary policy environments. Hmm. Okay. And it's probably take a little bit of thinking and I'll have to read that that section a little bit more detail because I'm sure there's some you know kind of logic that makes it makes me feel a little bit better about that. But you would you would expect, as you said, the higher your uh, returns, the um, higher the risk. Or or the the phrase I use is the uh, more I want to make, the more risk I have to take. So I would have expected it uh, it indeed to be correlated there, but uh, very good. Uh, I've been convinced that uh, you know really when we started seeing all of this money printing going on that we'd end up like the 70s. Uh, is is inflation different in different monetary policy periods, and that could that be part of the explanation of why it hasn't happened the way I expected? Uh, I think you're correct, Ron. But the key is that inflation rears its head in periods after a lot of money has been printed. You know, we do find that inflation differs dramatically during the different monetary policy periods. Inflation was 2.9% in expansive periods. And again, those are when periods when interest rates were trending lower. Lower. 4.3% in indeterminate periods and 5.1% in restrictive periods. So what this means is that those return differences that I cited earlier, Mm -hmm. it makes the real return, that is the return after inflation, only 0.8% in restrictive periods. Because, you know, you said earlier that, well, that, you know, 5.9%, that doesn't sound so bad. Right. Well, when you factor inflation into it, it's a purchasing power gain of only 0.8%. There you while go. the while the increase in purchasing power during expansive periods is 12.3 percent, 
and it's 6.8% in indeterminate periods. So inflation has the opposite pattern that returns mm-hmm. do, so it exacerbates the differences across the periods. Oh, hugely. I mean, 5.9 versus 15.2. I mean, yes, it's big. It's significant. But, you know, we're talking less than threefold, where all of a sudden you start talking 0.8 versus uh, 12. <laughs> those yeah. those numbers are dramatically different. So you're, you're absolutely correct. The inflation really does uh, change that picture dramatically. And I think some investors are fooled by that because some investors just focus on nominal returns and don't focus on real returns. Hmm. Okay, we should uh, tell our listeners who just tuned in, you're listening to Wealthy and Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. If you missed the early part of the show, you can listen on the archive. And uh, the same link that we sent you, if uh, you got that from an email, would take you to this show. And if you missed prior shows, you can find them in the archive as well. The archive is on wealthdna.us. Today our guest is Dr. Robert Johnson. Our topic is Invest in the Fed. Now, Dr. Johnson wrote the book on this topic, and he's also the president and CEO of the American College of Financial Services. Okay, Bob, so I, I'm getting from this data that during the expansive periods, if I know it's an expansive period, I should be focusing more on small company stocks or they're going to hit it out of the ballpark. How about value versus growth stocks? Is there a difference in the in the various periods? There is, and I'm very much a value investor. Um, mm-hmm. Ron, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and oh. uh, the, the first investor that I was, folk, uh, that I was uh, introduced to was Mr. Buffett. I actually went to high school with his son, Peter. So uh, I've been a value investor um, my whole life. And in in fact, I wrote a book called Strategic Value Investing. Correct. So uh, we all know as a value investor, there are several ways to to define value. Um, In the book, we look at some simple ways, and one way is price-to-sales. That is, those firms selling at low price-to-sales ratios are considered value stocks, and those at high price-to-sales ratios are growth stocks. You can look at P.E. ratio. You can look at all other kinds of things, but one of the ways we focus is on price-to-sales. Now, the evidence on value is as compelling as it is on size with respect to monetary policy. The lowest 20% of price-to-sales ratio firms, that is the real value firms, returned 28% during expansive periods, 11.5% during indeterminate periods, and 5% during restrictive periods. So much of the value effect is also concentrated in expansive monetary periods. That is, that's when value investors really get their the bang for their buck. And as you might expect, if you combine both the size and value effects, you get a uh, compounding of an effect, so to speak. We find that small value firms return a whopping 44% during expansive periods. Wow and a more pedestrian 9.4% during indeterminate periods. And interestingly enough, during restrictive periods, Mm -hmm. the small value firms don't even keep up with inflation. They return 4.8%, so they don't even return the inflation rate. So the real winners during expansive periods are small value firms. Hmm. Okay, so they so that again, when we talk about the uh, the signals of knowing where Fed policy is, uh, depending on your investment portfolio or portions of it, may be very very sensitive to uh, you know changes in in, in that uh, in that policy uh, period. It, on that on the kind of that change, uh, I've always been a proponent that what goes uh, down tends to go up uh, next. Uh, that the uh, you know losers uh, yesterday are are the winners tomorrow and vice versa. What does your research show about these reversals in in, in Fed policy? Um, you know, there's some indicators that you can share with us. Sure. Um, one of the most consistent findings is, of course, Ron, that individual investors underperform the market, and one of the reasons they underperform the market is that they chase performance. I I find it curious, and I I referenced Mr. Buffett earlier, but the stock market's one of the only markets that people operate in 
where when the price of a good goes up, people want to buy more of it. <laughs> and when the price of that same good goes down, for some reason it becomes less attractive. I love the Buffett quote, by the way, when he says, whether we're talking about socks or stocks, I like buying quality merchandise when it's marked down. And Value investing basically is predicated on reversion to the mean, that some cycles become overblown. And there's a large body of academic research that supports reversals. That is what you said, yesterday's winners are tomorrow's losers and vice versa. In the book, we show that if you formed a portfolio of 20% of the stocks with the worst prior year performance, Mm-hmm. you would earn 14.7% in the following year, regardless of monetary policy. And if you performed a portfolio of the 20% of stocks with the best prior year performance, you'd only earn 9.7%. Now, let's overlay monetary policy on this. There are We show there is a reversals uh, um, phenomenon in the markets. What about monetary policy? Right. During expansive periods, a portfolio of past losers earns 30.2%, while in that same portfolio only returns 8.2% in indeterminate and 7.9% in restrictive periods. So the big reversals effect also takes place in expansive monetary policy periods. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so in essence, the, the reversals can help accentuate this uh, winner-loser phenomenon. Right, and you know, an example of the winner-loser phenomenon is the dogs of the Dow. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a typical where you buy the ten, the the ten stocks that are the highest yielding Dow stocks, right. and uh, hold them over the next year. We find that the dogs of the Dow, the outperformance of the dogs of the Dow is concentrated in expansive monetary policy periods also. Hmm. Okay, and of course the dogs of the Dow is not nearly a big universe because we're talking, you know, compared to to the whole stock universe, uh, it tends to be uh, somewhat the blue chip stocks. So it's not including those, uh, you know, the ones that tend to have the the most effect of these uh, uh, policy impacts, and it doesn't necessarily include, uh, you know, a representation of value stocks. I'm going to say there's probably some combination there, but it's not, again, represented the universe. So, uh, uh, you know, it is is interesting. A lot of people follow that, I think, but it just, uh, I guess it it would be in itself not a good indicator of that full reversal effect as other of the data you presented. No, but what it does show is that uh, I think the effect from what I would say is that the effect of monetary policy is really pervasive across all investment strategies. And any investment strategy that you can think of, I believe that there's a, a monetary policy influence that can be investigated. Okay. We've, we've, we've kind of dissected the market in a couple different ways. How about uh, market sectors? Are there some that do, uh, you know, that they, do they act differently in different Fed uh, monetary periods, uh, policy periods? Uh, you know, would you would you find certain sectors that uh, again tend to do uh, extremely well, and, and others that do uh, more poorly during the restrictive policies, etc.? Certainly, there are, there's a great deal of disparity of returns across stock market sectors in different Fed monetary policy periods, but. Thankfully, there's some intuition behind this. So what I would say is that while the same general pattern occurs, that Mm -hmm. is highest returns and expansive versus restrictive across nearly all sectors, there are some sectors that perform particularly well in expansive periods and don't do as poorly during restrictive periods. For instance, um, during expansive periods, consumer discretionary industries such as, oh, say, apparel, uh, retail, autos, durable goods did particularly well. An investor would have uh, done well to have had a portfolio with a larger concentration of those kinds of industries um, in expansive periods. And, you know, it makes sense because, Ron, if the Fed's pumped a lot more money into the pockets of consumers, you know, they can buy that new car, that washing machine, Mm -hmm. or that expensive business suit. During restrictive periods, as you might expect, defensive industries such as food, energy, utilities 
have shown better performance on average. Now, again, those industries still had higher returns during expansive periods, mm-hmm. but the disparity between expansive and restrictive was a lot tighter. The return distribution, if you will, was a lot tri- tighter. Now, this pattern has led to the formation of some mutual funds that are sector rotation funds, and they mm-hmm. attempt to move in and out of the market upon different economic conditions. And a lot of times those economic conditions are tied closely to the Fed. Hmm. Okay. I, I, and I hadn't thought of that, but the sector rotation might make some sense in, in a lot of ways. So so at least logic prevails here. All right, the big topic most of our listeners are probably uh, most curious about or you know, most interested in hearing about is bonds. Uh, you know, we, during the, the most recent six years, bonds have uh, done extremely well, uh, as they have for, for the 35 years before that. Uh, what happens in general, though, during these restrictive versus expansionary policies? Well, we looked at several different categories of bonds. Notably, we looked at treasury bonds. We looked at U.S. government agency bonds. We looked at investment-grade bonds and uh, junk bonds. And we found a similar pattern in the first three of those categories of bonds. That is, they had very similar returns in expansive and restrictive periods. In fact, there wasn't much Hmm. difference in the bond returns during expansive and restrictive periods. And interestingly enough, they showed the highest returns during indeterminate periods. And I'll just give you an example of one. For treasury bonds, treasury bonds returned 7% in expansive periods, 9.1% 9.1% in restrictive periods and 6.3 or 9.1% mm. in indeterminate periods and 6.3% in restrictive periods. Now, high yield bonds Ron were the exception. Okay. And again, like into Intuition's great, and exactly what you just said. They act like stocks. They returned 12.4% during expansive periods and 7.6% during indeterminate periods, but they actually did pretty well in restrictive periods. Junk bonds returned 8.5% during restrictive periods. So they acted like stocks, but they actually beat stocks in uh, underperformed stocks in expansive periods and actually beat stocks in restrictive periods. And I would chalk that up to the to the to the bond payment uh, portion of junk bonds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, yeah, their, their their risk tends to go a lot higher as well during during those uh, restrictive periods, and, and I guess that's one of the reasons. In, you know, the Wall Street marketing guys like to call them high yield bonds because that doesn't sound like they are going to be as effective by the, by the yeah. economy. <laughs> Uh, all right. How about alternative assets? Now, this is a category I invest uh, the majority of my uh, investments are in, real estate, commodities, precious metals. Uh, how do they do in those various periods? I mean, if you if you watch the gold prices, for example, recently, uh, every time you know there's some indication the interest rates might rise, uh, they drop like crazy. Um, you know, is there is there some evidence that uh, they do vary so much across those periods? Well, the interesting thing is, first of all, let's take real estate. Okay, um, it's hard. It's hard to gauge um, returns to real estate, so you have to gauge returns to proxies of real estate. And mm-hmm. if you look at real estate investment trusts, trust. the returns are very similar to the returns on stocks: highest during expansive periods and lowest during restrictive periods. When you look at gold, Ron, the evidence isn't as really very interesting or very compelling. Um, gold, the returns to gold is pretty consistent across all periods. 7.8% during expansive periods, 8.6% during indeterminate periods, and only 4.9% during restrictive periods. So gold didn't doesn't even, during restrictive periods, when people rush to gold, it doesn't even provide you with the return that equals inflation. Now, having said that, the one category of assets that does very well during restrictive periods is commodities. If you look at the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, and that represents a broad index of, I believe, it's 24 different commodities, it actually had a 0.2% return during expansive periods, a 14% return during indeterminate periods, and a nearly 18% return during restrictive periods. 
So what that says is people want to be in small value stocks during expansive periods and in commodities during restrictive periods. Okay, so, or, or the technical term we tend to use around the show is while stocks are zigging, the uh, commodities are zagging. That's a- absolutely true. <laughs> and it's it's funny how we've kind of adopted that zig and zag uh, that terminology, but it really is appropriate when it comes to these non-correlations. And uh, excellent. That's a really the commodity investing is a good way to uh, to diversify your portfolio and kind of uh, keep it from bouncing around as much. Uh, great, great to know. Now, there's one more key category we haven't talked about, we haven't touched on yet, was international. Since Fed policies theoretically, uh, you know, affects the U.S. market, but does the Diversifying internationally uh, change my portfolio uh, picture, uh, both the uh, you know the the amount of change as well as the uh, volatility. If I add uh, international stocks, well, there's good news and bad news here. Um, okay. Let's take the bad news first. The bad Sorry. news is that the global developed markets perform very similarly to the U.S. markets. In other words, highest returns during expansive periods, lowest returns during restrictive periods. The good news is that developing markets Mm -hmm. or emerging markets show Mm -hmm. a pattern that's distinctly different from the U.S. um, and and other world developed markets. Emerging markets returned 8.5% during expansive periods about 18% during indeterminate periods, and 16.5% during restrictive periods. So investors would have been wise to be, and this is a very difficult thing for investors to understand, because people tend to get very conservative during restrictive Mm -hmm, periods. mm -hmm. The best asset classes that we've found that people could have been in in the past would have been commodities, and emerging markets during restrictive periods. Wow. wow. And in fact, if you look at frontier markets, and what are frontier markets? Mm-hmm. They're kind of like the Wild West of emerging markets. They're the emerging markets that are the real nascent markets. Um, yep. that, Africa would the be pattern, Yes, the pattern of, uh, of, of those markets is even more dramatic than of the, uh, the 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 more widely known or widely developed the BRICS, for instance, the Brazil, you know, Russia, India, China. Um, during expansive periods, frontier markets actually had a slight negative return, and they averaged a 21% return during restrictive periods. So they would have been wonderful, not only diversifiers, but uh, return enhancers during um, restrictive periods. Wow. Okay, I'm going to revisit my allocation to uh, to emergence, uh, emerging markets. Uh, I'll admit I've been a little bit cautious there because of what's going on with the dollar and the uh, oil markets. But uh, that seems to be calming down. It's maybe a time to good good time to jump in and add a little bit uh, of allocation well, there. Really. Ron, remember what Mr. Buffett's always said: Be fearful when others are greedy, and greedy mm-hmm. when others are fearful. Yeah, it's tough to do. It's it's, it's it the right really thing to do. Really is. And I'm generally good at it, but emerging markets one I would have seen I, I, that was one I had not yet gotten to in the book, and uh, great tip on that one. Before we forget, and very important, let's remind our listeners how they learn more about you, more about the American College, and more about this book. Uh, you can find out about the American College. Go to www.theamericancollege.edu. For the book, Invest with the Fed, um, just simply go to Amazon.com and, and type in Invest with the Fed. And if anybody wants to email me, ask me any questions, I'm happy to give my email address out. It's bob.johnson at theamericancollege.edu. Fantastic. Now, what's your recommendation to investors? Uh, they, they've heard some great information on the show today. They can't possibly remember all of the figures. Uh, and then, So they'll read the book. What's your advice uh, to those investors? Not to re- I assume part of it is not to read it once, but to refer back to it as they see changes. But what else would you recommend? I would say, Ron, that the bottom line is for folks to realize that Fed policy does have a tremendous influence on investment returns. And I would say that investors ignore Fed policy at their own peril. My counsel would be that investors not make wholesale changes 
based on Fed policy. Certainly don't bail out of U.S. stocks and put all your money in emerging markets and commodities in restrictive periods. But I would advocate that investors do make subtle changes to their allocations depending on Fed monetary policy. And even if you don't make any changes, Ron, I think that it's instructive for investors to adjust their expectations depending on Fed policy. When the Fed has adopted a restrictive stance, expect that equity returns are going to be lower. And right now, given that rates can do nothing but go up, um, at, at some point they have to go up, my advice would be for investors to be psychologically prepared for lower equity returns over the next few years. Mm-hmm. And potentially higher inflation, despite what the government tells us. That's exactly right. That was a real have, a pleasure having you as our guest, uh, Bob. And I'm hoping you'll join us again. I, I've noticed that you also have done a lot of work on the effect of elections on capital markets, and maybe that would be a topic we'd want to talk about uh, as the uh, U.S. elections start hitting some of their uh, stride. I am actually in the process of writing a book proposal about that very topic. Wow, I didn't see. I didn't know that. I have to. There's a mea couple to my to my investors. That was not a leading question. I did not know that, but I knew you did a bunch of research in that, or done, done a number of uh, research projects in that area. So it'd be a great one to have you back on. Really appreciate your time and uh, joining us today. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Thank you, Ron. Alrighty. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, our ambitious mission for today for you and me to better understand the effects of Fed policy on our portfolios. And I don't think we disappointed. I also mentioned we wouldn't have time to cover all of the questions I had in my notes. So I have a suggestion as to how you can get more information on this topic. Now listen very carefully, since I don't want everyone in the world to hear this advice. Just you. Get a copy of Robert Johnson's just-released book, Invest with the Fed. There you'll get the answers to most of the questions you have and some you didn't even think of asking. Now, incidentally, my success in achieving the holy grail of having income for life probably has far less to do with my being smarter than the average person than it does with the fact that I read ten times the amount the average person reads. And it's not that I retain all that knowledge, but when I need it, I certainly can find it easier than most people can. You see, Internet searches are a powerful tool, but you won't find the answers to any of the questions we pose on this show, and you aren't likely to find the questions you should be asking on the Internet either. Now, some of the topics we didn't have time to cover, and I would love to uh, in the future, since they've done so well for 40 years, what's likely to happen to the U.S. and international bonds in the next few years as interest rates rise? And whether the accumulation of trillions of dollars in bank excess reserves, which has never happened before, could that alter the capital market dynamics as the Fed changes their policy? And whether the relative size of the U.S. capital markets, which used to be well over 50%, are well below now, could it be that the effect of other countries may dampen the effect of Fed policy in the future? And what would Dr. Johnson do differently if he were named Fed Chairman. Now, even though we couldn't cover all of those topics in one hour, you already have an advantage over the majority of investors. As you know, we can classify Fed policy into three categories, and you and I can do it ourselves by just looking at the data over the last month. Is it expensive, restrictive, or indeterminate? And what two indicators to use? You also now have some insights on how various markets perform in those periods and where to get the information about that performance. The other big advantage you have over most investors who listen to the Wealth DNA radio show, regular listeners know that our objective is to help one million people become millionaires. And I'm confident some of the information we discussed will be extremely helpful in your journey to become one of those millionaires. And remember, one of the best ways to increase your wealth, tune into this show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas, and help diversify and grow your portfolio. You got a couple tips today. Many thanks to BI Solutions Corp for uh, sponsoring today's show. Their residential real estate fund, based in the Phoenix Scottsdale area, and have already helped many investors like me to have income for life. The next Wealth DNA Radio Show for the second Monday of April is April 13th, 9 a.m. Arizona time. Same place and same time, except if you're in Europe, you'll be changing your clocks. It'll be an hour later. 
Our guest will be Victor Ricciardi. We'll be talking about investor behavior and why most investors act and react the way they do in a variety of situations. Maybe you'll even learn more about yourself. It'll certainly be well worth your time to tune in. As usual, we provide the lineup of guests and topics on WealthDNA.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows. If you have some comments, questions, suggestions, or you haven't received my emails about the show, or maybe you have trouble accessing the site in the next few days, send an email to me, ron at WealthDNA.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events, and I can also send you the links that you're trying to get. Happy investing with the Fed rather than fighting the Fed. You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started.